Psalm 46. I'll read this through and we'll pray one more time. Psalm 46, verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth should change, and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, and though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in the midst of her, she will not be moved, God will help her when morning dawns. The nations made an uproar, the kingdoms tottered, he raised his voice, the earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob is our stronghold. Come, behold the works of the Lord, who has wrought desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. I want to sail off for a moment here and just reflect on these words. Your greatness, Father. You are our strength. You are our stronghold. You are our God. And it is you, Father, by your word who calls out to us this morning, cease striving. Be still. Hush. And know that I am God. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would make us to know this truth. Not with our heads, Father, but with our hearts this morning. May we accept and receive in our spirits you as God, Elohim, our all-powerful Father. And Spirit, lead us into your word and your will this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. I find it interesting the last several Sundays that we've been in the Psalms, we've seen the Lord declaring to us, Do not fret. Heard people saying that the week following. And then the next week we heard hope in God. And I heard people repeating that. And we love the simple phrases that can can stick in our hearts and in our minds. Do not fret. Hope in God. And this morning, cease striving. You think God might be trying to tell us something? Do not fret. Hope in God. And cease striving. Well, there was a time of great striving in Judah. Much fear. A lot of worry, stress among the people and especially on the king. The southern kingdom of Judah were under a great oppression as they saw their most massive enemy on their borders. And then coming across their borders. The king's name was Hezekiah. The enemy was the Assyrians. One of the most brutal and horrific armies ever to march on the face of the earth. We've talked about the Assyrians before, but there are some things you might not have known about their brutality. The mighty Assyrians were those who stacked up the heads of their victims in pyramids, sometimes as high as 25 to 30 feet at the gates of conquered cities that they had attacked. 
The Assyrians, mighty Assyria, they were the ones who put fish hooks either in the mouths or in the noses of their captured people to drag them across the hot desert into slavery. The mighty Assyrians actually devised a way to skin a person alive and leave them writhing in pain for several hours until they finally expired. A brutal people. The Assyrians would take their spears and they would run them literally up the backside of an enemy soldier and out the top of his head. And they would plant these soldiers on these spears around the conquered cities. Absolutely brutal. Mighty Assyria is the region of Iran and Iraq today. And mighty Assyria had already decimated and destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. 722 B.C. Came in, wiped them out, took them off into captivity. And we know several fled down to Judah of the Jewish people and remained there. But most were completely decimated, destroyed, and taken off. Mighty Assyria had besieged and conquered the region known as Samaria. So Judah's only buffer zone originally was northern Israel and then Samaria, and the buffers were gone. And now Assyria had begun to pick off all of the fortified cities of Judah to the point that now they had surrounded Jerusalem. Hezekiah, the people, are in Jerusalem. And they are terrified at this massive army. And King Sennacherib sent a letter by a man named Rabshikeh. And Rabshikeh brought this letter and they began to taunt and they began to push the people of Judah from the other side of the city walls. And tell them you guys can't survive. And it's a whole story that's, that's written in 2 Kings 19. In fact, if, if you'd like to turn there, 2 Kings 19 gives us some understanding that is necessary for this morning. 2 Kings 19. Sennacherib, king of Assyria. I've shared before, and this is interesting, his name means the moon god multiplies his brothers. That's what Sennacherib means. The moon god multiplies his brothers. It's interesting. Because there was a tribe, an an Arabic tribe, the Kuraish tribe, there in the Middle East, at the time where there were all kinds of tribal gods among the Arabic people, and this one tribe, the Kuraish tribe, had a god that was the moon god. His sign was the crescent moon, and his name was Allah. It was Muhammad's tribe. And the origin, the source of Allah as, as god of Islam, was a tribal god, the moon god of Muhammad's original tribe. Muhammad just decided, we'll take my tribal god and we will make him the almighty god. The one and only God, which is why you see the crescent moon today in Islam. Interesting, Sennacherib, the moon god, multiplies his brothers. Well, Hezekiah's name means Yahweh is strength. I would rather have Hezekiah's name, personally. Yahweh is strength. So how did Hezekiah respond to the threat of Assyria on the borders? He did three things. The first thing Hezekiah did, 2 Kings 19, he went to church. First thing he did when he found himself facing trouble is he went to church. A lot of people do that, by the way. We saw church attendance increase dramatically immediately after 9-11. Same thing happened back after December 7th when Pearl Harbor was attacked. Church attendance because people have this sense of, I've got to get where I have some help, where there may be some strength that I can't find in myself. 
And Hezekiah goes directly to the house of the Lord, the temple. When King Hezekiah, 2 Kings 19, verse 1, heard it, he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, and entered the house of the Lord. And that was a good move. That was the right move. It was the right place to be. He went to church. Second thing he did was he called for prayer, sending for the prophet Isaiah. Verse 2 said, He sent Eliakim, who was over the household, with Shebna the scribe, and the elders of the priests covered in sackcloth to Isaiah, the prophet, the son of Amos. And they said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This is a day of distress, rebuke, and rejection. For children have come to birth, and there is no strength to deliver. Perhaps the Lord God will hear all the words of Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to reproach the living God, and will rebuke the words which the Lord your God has heard. Therefore offer a prayer for the remnant that is left. So the servants of King Hezekiah, they came to Isaiah. And Isaiah said to them, Thus you shall say to your master, Thus says the Lord. Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he will hear a rumor and return to his own land and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. Hezekiah goes to church. The people are worried. The king is worried. He goes to the sanctuary. To be in the presence of the Lord. He calls for prayer. Sending his men out to the prophet Isaiah who he trusted. Isaiah, pray for us. Tell us what the Lord has for us. But thirdly, Hezekiah didn't just send for prayer. Hezekiah himself prayed. Verse 14. Then Hezekiah took the letter from the hand of the messengers and he read it and he went up to the house of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, who are enthroned above the cherubim, You are God, You alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And listen to the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have devastated the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. And so they have destroyed them. Now, O Lord our God, I pray, deliver us from His hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that You alone, O Lord, our God. And then Isaiah the son of Amoz sent to Hezekiah saying, Thus says the Lord your God to, of Israel, because you have prayed. Note that. Hezekiah, because you have prayed to me about Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard you. Listen, we can rely on other people to pray for us. We need to call upon others to pray with us. But we need to pray. We need to take our requests, our hurts, our desires, our worries, our frustrations and stresses. We need to take these things to the Lord. And not just leave it to the professionals. How many times has my phone rung and someone said, Rick, I need you to come pray. Or Rick, can you send Les to come pray? And my first thought, gang, every time is, you pray. I can pray with you. I would love to pray with you. Les absolutely loves to pray with you. But you don't need me, and you don't need Les, and you don't need the shepherds. You go to God. We are among the priesthood of all believers, are we not? A royal priesthood, Peter writes. 
And therefore, each and every one of us having access to God the Father, you pray. And we will come alongside and pray with you. I have heard you. I love Hezekiah's prayer. What a prayer of great faith. As he says that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, O Lord, are God. Perhaps you're aware of the controversy there in New York City at Ground Zero where there are those who would build a 15-story Muslim center complete with mosque which I don't know what your perspective is on it. Mine is. It's an affront to the nation. But I'll tell you why. There are those who are saying it's not about religious freedom. I agree with that. It's not about religious freedom. It's a provocative act. And there are those who who are saying it would be hurtful to all the families of 9-11, not to mention to our nation. And I, I understand that and agree with that. But I'll tell you what. What concerns me more is that a mosque is being built at all. Because, as Hezekiah said, we want all the kingdoms of the earth to know that you alone, O Lord, are God. You alone, Yahweh, are God. Not the moon God, but the God. And what concerns me and many of you greatly in our nation is is the growth of all manner. It's not just Islam. It's all manner of religions and pagan thought and spiritualism and beliefs that are denying the one true God. And we need to run to Him. What does all this have to do with Psalm 46? We'll go back there right now. Most conservative scholars agree that the author of Psalm 46 was in fact Hezekiah. That he wrote this psalm. Along with Psalm 47 and 48. We'll look at all of these kind of together as a trilogy this coming Wednesday night. It is a trilogy of deliverance that we believe Hezekiah himself wrote. A symphony of freedom in three movements. And Psalm 46 is movement number one. And together, these three psalms, they deal with the ultimate victory that God brings about for His people. And I use the word ultimate specifically there. Because these three psalms not only deal with the victory of Hezekiah and the people over Assyria, but the victory of all God's people in days soon to come. If you want to hear more about that, I invite you to come back Wednesday night. Psalm 46, however, we hear the faith of Hezekiah. The faith of Hezekiah as it rises up in the face of a worldwide terror. Verse 1. He says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. I want you to hear how that reads directly in the Hebrew because it's wonderful. God is our refuge and our strength and literally abundantly available in a tight spot. You might jot that down. He is abundantly available in a tight spot. I love that. If you're a note taker, three things to note this morning. Number one, God promises a grand release. He promises a grand release. He is abundantly available in a tight spot. Now the reason I like that so much is because tight spots are usually the result of my own stupid choices. It's not just trouble that comes on me. It's that I make a decision that gets me between the proverbial rock and a hard place. Oftentimes I have gotten myself into a mess that I can't get out of. A tight spot. Oh, now what do I do? I back myself into a corner. How do I get out of this? I think we can point the finger at Hezekiah as to the problem he and the people are facing 
there in Jerusalem. That Hezekiah may well have gotten his people into the tight spot that they are in. It's interesting because he came to power, he became king of Judah when he was 25 years old. And for the first four to five years of his reign, Hezekiah was so successful militarily, he beat back the Philistines. He beat back the surrounding nations. He was strong. He was powerful. The people trusted in him. And so Hezekiah decided to rebel against Assyria. Had he not decided to rebel, Assyria wouldn't have had any reason to be angry and may have let them just kind of quietly exist down there. But Hezekiah rebels. And that ticked off Sennacherib and the Assyrians and Sennacherib's father before him. And so they turned their violent gaze toward little Judah. Because Hezekiah said, I'm strong, man. And I'm not going to pay your duty. I'm not going to pay your taxes. And he ticked them off. You know, I believe God will save me from enemy attacks. But perhaps you're like me, where time to time I say, but why should He save me from my own stupidity? We have heard over and over people saying, I got myself into this mess. Why should God care? Because He does. Because He's God. It doesn't matter if you got yourself into the tight spot, or if the enemy attacked and got you into a tight spot. God loves you. That is His very nature. It's who He is. We still think it all has to do with us. And it doesn't. It all has to do with Him. His nature. His character. His personality. His love. And so even when you are the reason that you're in the spot you're in, God still wants to deliver you. He still will provide a way out because He loves you. Even when the tight spot is the result of your own sin, God wants to deliver Our nation's in a tight spot. Big time. I'm amazed. More than any time in my life. At the place that we are nationally. The national debt spiraling out of control. Jobless claims again rose to their highest levels since last February. This month. And some are wondering how they're going to get to the next paycheck. How am I going to meet my family's needs? And worse yet, it looks like Randy is the only judge possibly staying with American Idol. There's a lot to fret about in our country. A lot to be worried about. We're in a tight spot. And Hezekiah says God is our refuge and our strength, abundantly available in tight places or in a tight spot. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth should change, and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, and though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake with its swelling pride, and I'd like to take those two verses and mail them to every global warming alarmist in the world. We will not fear. If you could walk in here today and prove to me, and I think you'd have a hard time doing it, but if you could prove to me that global climate change is the threat that some would say that it is, if you could prove it unequivocally, I would still say, I will not fear. Though the earth should change. Even if the mountains slip into the sea. Even if all these bad things happen. August 5th, Reuters tells us that the Peterman Glacier had a huge break-off there in Greenland. It's one of the two largest glaciers in Greenland. And an ice island broke away and now is drifting. It's the area of a hundred square miles. Huge. And they're worried about that. It's as thick as the Empire State Building is tall. 
this massive island of ice. And proponents of global warming are, are worried about what's going on in the world, and they fear the worst, and I say, hey, chill out. <laughs> Relax. I will not fear because God is my refuge and my strength. Not planet Earth. Not where I live. He is my refuge. Again, there's so much we can be worried about in the world. And the reality is you can feel free to fret. If if you'd like to, you have every right to be stressed out. If you want to sit around and worry and lose your hair and go gray early... If you want the world to worry you and fret and be involved in fear, you know, you can do that. Because our world does that. There should be a difference between us and the world. Not because Christians are better than. We're human beings like anybody else. We deal with fear and fret and concerns and worries like any and everybody else. But there should be a difference. The Hebrew writer says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, Since the children share in flesh and blood, talking about all of us, Jesus Himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death He might render powerless Him who had the power of death, that is the devil. And listen to this, and He might free or deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. You hear what he's saying? That Jesus, by His death and resurrection, frees us from the fear that subjects all the rest of the world to slavery. That if you come to Jesus, you have been pulled out, you have been delivered, you don't have any reason to fret or worry or fear like the rest of the world. Because ultimately, the basis of worry and fretting, the basis of all of our fears, comes down to one thing, and that is death. If this economy fails and goes out of control, I won't be able to feed my family, and death. If the world split and broke apart because of climate change, oh no, death. Death is the basis for every fear of mankind in the world. And the Hebrew writer says, hey man, you've been saved by Jesus Christ. What really do you have to be worried about? What do you have to fear? We should be different. You know what the fear of death really is? It's the fear of what if. You know, what if the job doesn't come through? What if the dollar fails and the economy falls? What if the treatment doesn't work or the illness returns? What if my plans, my aspirations, my goals die before I can get to them? What if? And that is the fear that the world is subject to. But Jesus delivered you from that fear. You no longer fear the what if. You have the Lord. And you like Hezekiah can come before the Lord and say, It's you. You're our strength. You're my deliverer. Therefore, Lord, deliver me. And what has the Lord been saying to us here at the British Christian Fellowship? Don't fret. Hope in God. Cease striving. I like this verse Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.7 For God has not given us a spirit of timidity or fear, but of power and love and discipline. These are the things that characterize the follower of Jesus Christ. 
Romans 8.15, he says, You have not received a spirit of slavery leading again to fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And I've told you it's wonderful to be in Jerusalem and to hear the little children running around calling out their dads, Abba! That's the Hebrew name for Daddy. And our Daddy has it. Our Father has got all things under His control. And so we call out to Him. We no longer apply to that spirit of slavery. We can, through Jesus, say we will not fear. Even if the world should fall into the sea, we will not fear. Well, Hezekiah's fearless faith emerges here in Psalm 46. And by the way, because of Hezekiah's faith, remember, because Hezekiah himself prayed, the Lord said, I'm going to deliver you from Assyria. You know what happened, the rest of the story? 2 Kings 19.28 The Lord says, Because of your raging against me, and because your arrogance has come up to my ears, he's talking to Sennacherib, therefore I'll put a hook in your nose, and I will put my bridle in your lips, and I will turn you back by the way which you came. And God did just that. Without a single arrow being shot, God did it. And to Hezekiah, God declared in 2 Kings 19, verse 30, the surviving remnant of the house of Judah will again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem will go forth a remnant, and out of Mount Zion survivors. The zeal of the Lord will perform this. And my friends, I believe not only was that literal for the day, but it was prophetic for the Jewish people. Read on, verse 4. After the first Selah, we come back. Hezekiah writes, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations made an uproar. The kingdoms tottered. He raised His voice and the earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Second thing to note. Secondly, God provides a glad river. He promises our grand release. He also provides a glad river. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. Jerusalem, unlike most cities in the world, which tend to be built near or around water sources. That's important. If you're going to build a city, you want to get water there. Perhaps you know down on Whidbey Island, further south, there was a whole development that was planned and they began to build homes. And those homes even today sit empty because there was no water. When they started to dig wells, there was nothing there. It silt. But there's a river that makes glad the city of God. Yet Jerusalem was built on solid bedrock. Up high, in a rocky area. The only stream, the closest spring nearby was the Gihon Spring. And it's down below, outside the city walls. And so they would daily have to take water from that stream and transport it up into the city so the people of the city could have water. It's the one area where you wonder, why did they build it where they built it? Typically you'd want to be closer to the source of water. Well, Sennacherib and the Assyrians knew this. They knew the water source for the people of Jerusalem was outside the city walls. And they figured, hey, all we have to do is cut them off. We'll just cut them off and we'll thirst them out of the city. Eventually they'll have no water and they will start to die. And they will need water and they'll come out. And so that's what they were doing. The city was besieged. 
And Sennacherib came down. You know what Hezekiah did? Some of you Bible students remember this. He ordered a tunnel to be dug. He knew, he heard about the Assyrians coming, and before they could get down to Judah, he said, guys, figure out a way. We've got to dig a tunnel. We've got to figure a way to get the Gihon Spring up into the city so that we can have water because we're about to come under siege. And his engineers got together and they figured out a way to do it. And it's a way that we do not even understand today. We don't know how they did it. He First he covered up the Gihon Spring so that they couldn't find it or see where it was. And then he had his men start digging. And there was a group of men who started the spring of Gihon and a group of men who started up in the upper part of the city of David. And they started to dig through solid bedrock. And they both dug and eventually met in the middle. And it's miraculous. They should have gone any manner of directions, but somehow they figured out a way to meet there in the middle. And it's called Hezekiah's Tunnel. And you can walk through it today. And the mouth of Hezekiah's tunnel is absolutely astounding. You go down into the cistern and you can see the mouth and the springs are still just gushing, even today. Hezekiah was a remarkable man. But listen, what Sennacherib did not understand was that Hezekiah did have a river to the city. And there's a clue here for us, followers of Jesus, The enemy did not know about the river. The enemy did not understand the stream that makes glad the city of God. God provides a river that our enemy does not understand. Jesus said in John 7.38, Who who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. The enemy doesn't get that. Satan can't comprehend the presence of God in the heart, in the spirit of someone who believes in him. He doesn't understand that. John writes in John 7.39, Jesus spoke of the Spirit whom those who believed in Him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. But listen, Jesus has been glorified. He is glorified and He started that river flowing. We call it Pentecost. Shavuot was the Jewish holiday. And on that day, the river started to flow. Beginning with the apostles. And then on to any person, any and everyone who is born again by the Spirit of the living God, there is a river whose streams make me glad. Why is it that a Christian person can have a joyful countenance while everybody around them is fretting and fearful? I have a river. I have a stream. I have a gushing torrent that comes up from my spirit by the Spirit of God. And it washes me continually. And it brings me joy and it refreshes me even in my hardest of days. Romans 15, 13. Paul said, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, why do we fret? Why do we worry when there is a river whose streams make us glad? A river the enemy doesn't understand, that he is unaware of. And by the way, there will be a river in Jerusalem one day that is not there now. A great river, a massive river. Speaking of the coming millennial kingdom, the prophet Zechariah wrote these words, Zechariah 14 verse 8. In that day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem. Half of them toward the eastern sea, that's the Dead Sea. 
and the other half toward the Western Sea, that's the Med Sea. So you've got the Dead Sea, the Med Sea, and you have the Red Sea, okay, all around Jerusalem. Zechariah says there's going to be a day when out of the center, of, out of that bedrock, a river will flow. And it's going to go in both directions. I want you to turn to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 47. Ezekiel 47. Of course, you Bible students know Ezekiel's vision rounds out with a great proclamation of future events. Things that have yet to be fulfilled, but will be fulfilled. Ezekiel 47, verse 1. I just want to read this to you. Ezekiel's writing and he said, speaking of this angel who's been taking him through these things, then he brought me back to the door of the house, that's the temple, and behold, water was flowing from under the threshold of the house toward the east, for the house faced east. And the water was flowing down from under to the right side of the house from south of the altar. He brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gate by way of the gate that faces east. That's the golden gate. That's the great gate. Jesus returns through. And there's water now flowing straight out this gate. Now watch this. He says, Behold, the water was trickling from the south side. But when the man went out toward the east with a line in his hand, he measured a thousand cubits and he led me through the water. Water reaching the ankles. And again, he measured a thousand more and led me through the water, water reaching the knees. Again, he measured a thousand more and led me through the water, water reaching the loins. Again, he measured a thousand, and it was a river I could not ford, for the water had risen enough water to swim in a river that could not be forded. You get this picture that the spring starts trickling out and then gets bigger and bigger and more massive as it goes until there's a point where Ezekiel said, I couldn't even swim across it. It was just raging and gushing and flowing. Verse 6. He said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? And then he brought me back to the bank of the river. Now when I had returned, behold, on the very bank of the river, there were very many trees on one side and on the other. And he said to me, These waters go out toward the eastern region. And they go down into the Arabah. And then they go down toward the sea, being made to flow into the sea, and the waters of the sea become fresh. Which sea is that? The Dead Sea. And if you've been in the Arabah, if you've looked at the Dead Sea, it is just a salt waste. And even the Dead Sea itself is drying up. And there's nothing but salt and minerals, 33% of the Dead Sea is salt and minerals. They say the Pacific Ocean is around 0.05%, maybe up, upwards of 1%, 33%. If you drink the waters of the Dead Sea, you will die. Your throat, your stomach, everything would just dry up and you're done. But it's a lot of fun to float in. Just don't drink it. This river is so fresh and so pure that it flows into the Dead Sea and washes out the salt, washes out the minerals, and makes, in the coming millennial kingdom, makes the Dead Sea a freshwater lake. Incredible. 
It goes on and says in verse 9, It will come about that every living creature which swarms in every place where the river goes will live. And there will be very many fish, for these waters go there, and the others become fresh. So everything will live where the water goes. Check that out. Everything will live where the water goes. That's what happens with the Holy Spirit. Where the water goes. Where the Spirit of God is allowed access and freedom to move and do His thing. Life happens. And joy because of life. But this is literal. Everything There will be fishermen on the Dead Sea in the Millennial Kingdom. You know? Reeling in. Big hauls. Great catches. And it will come about, verse 10, that the fishermen will stand beside it. From Engedi to Enegleim, there will be a place for the spreading of nets. Their fish will be according to their kinds, like the fish of the great sea, very many. But its swamps and its marshes will not become fresh. They will be left for salt. See, God is still providing. Not only are we now going to have this fresh water sea, but there's also going to be the salt marshes so people can still get plenty of salt, you know, for their eggs, their bacon, whatever they need it for. Verse 12, By the river on its banks, one side and on the other, they will grow, will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither. Their fruit will not fail. They're, they will bear every month because their water flows from the sanctuary. And their fruit will be for the food and their leaves for healing. And there's so much here, by the way, of just an incredible picture of how the Holy Spirit works. Bearing fruit and bringing healing. And we could do a whole sermon on that. I won't, I won't do that right now. But this is an actual and a literal river that will flow. My friends, going back to Psalm 46, when you pick up about verse 4 through the end of the psalm, it is prophetic of the coming millennial kingdom. Hezekiah, inspired by the Spirit of God to write this, is talking about big things. Again, things that are bigger than his day. Things that are amazing, that go beyond. Even after the thousand year reign of Christ, in the new Jerusalem, there will be a a river that makes glad the city of God. Revelation 22 verse 1 says, He showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street, on either side, the river was was the tree of life. Bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His bondservants will serve Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. And that's in after the millennium, after the kingdom reign, after the thousand years. When the book of Revelation says He creates a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem and there will be a river whose streams make glad the city of God. By the way, I I want to point this out. There is no mention of the Holy Spirit in the new Jerusalem. Which is interesting to me. Revelation chapter 2. You see God the Father. You see Jesus the Son. But you have to ask, well, where's the Spirit? There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. God is in the midst of her. And the the river, though being a literal river, may also be a picture of the constant flow of the Holy Spirit. But here's the deal. Right now, we need the Spirit of Christ in and among us. Because we are in the body, and while we're present in the body, we are absent from the Lord. We need His Spirit. But when we're in New Jerusalem, though we will still need His Spirit, we'll have His Spirit. Jesus will be right there. It's kind of like when He walked on the earth the first time. 
And, and, and Philip said, show us the Father. And Jesus said, hello? <laughs> How long have you spent with me, Philip? Don't you recognize me? I'm right here. What do you want me to show you the Father for? Here I am. And in New Jerusalem, the new heaven, the new earth, that will be the case. Here He is. We won't have the same need for His Spirit that we have now because we will be surrounded by His Spirit, His presence, the Father and the Son. Right now, however, the Holy Spirit has been given to us as a pledge, as a seal of that great salvation. 2 Corinthians 5.4 says, While we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened. You could say paying a toll. (laughs) Because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. And now He who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. That is for now. His Spirit is a pledge. But then our access will be directly to the Lord in the presence of the Father, in the presence of the Son, as immediate as that refreshing river, making glad the city of God. One last thing i got to point out, and, and we'll continue, we'll finish the psalm here. Ezekiel, in talking about this river, says something very interesting that I think applies to us and the Spirit today. He said, it starts with the ankles. And then it becomes the knees that are covered. And then the loins. And then finally it's over my head. What a great picture for the Holy Spirit. He starts with our ankles. We take first steps. I believe, Jesus, You are the Son of God. I believe You're the Christ. I receive You as my Savior. And our ankles get wet. And the Lord gives us the indwelling of His Holy Spirit. But there's more. There's more river. A river that would go over our knees, which is a picture of worship. That we then become on our knees before the Father. Our worship is Spirit-filled and Spirit-led and joyful and wonderful. And it's in those times of worship that we most experience the presence of God's Holy Spirit. But the water then comes up above the loins. The loins are a picture gang of reproduction. That we get to a point in our lives where suddenly there is reproduction. There are others finding Jesus because of the Spirit in your life. Because you're walking with Christ more than ankle deep. More than knee deep. Now, He is covering the loins. But Ezekiel says the river also gets to a point where it goes over our head. Which is a picture of complete immersion. Soaked, covered completely by the Holy Spirit. And listen, I I need to tell you this. The Lord is not going to take you any deeper into His Holy Spirit than you want to go. He's not going to drag you in. He's not going to force you to become some kind of, you know, overwhelmed Pentecostal. He's not going to force that. But He will take you as deep as you want to go. Sadly, in the church, there are a lot of ankle-deep Christians. Love the Lord. Have the indwelling of His Spirit. But don't want to go any further. Don't talk to me about the Holy Spirit, Rick. That is, it's too much. I, just, I want to come to church. I want to have my Bible study. I want to have my worship once a week or so. Twice a week when I'm really having hard times. And that's all I want. Ankle-deep. There are others who fall into absolute love with the Lord and worship and they're knee-deep. Others who are out evangelizing, touching lives, changing people, they're loin-deep. But God is all the while saying, i got a deeper river. I've got more. 
I can go over your head anytime you want me to. And I believe the Lord would love to teach all of us how to swim. Psalm 46, verse 8. He writes, Come, behold the works of the Lord who has wrought desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. This is both a song of praise and again a prophetic word of the run-up to the coming kingdom. Note some of the things he says. Earlier on, in in verse 6, he says, He raised his voice and the earth melted. Well, I didn't read that in the story of Hezekiah. I don't see the earth melting in 2 Kings 18, 19, and 20. It didn't happen. What is Hezekiah talking about? Oh, it's just one of those biblical word pictures. You know, it's kind of a parable for God being powerful. I don't think so. I think it's prophetic and actual for what is going to happen. And if you don't believe me, read Revelation 6 through 19, and you'll see it described right there. What is coming? Shaking the earth. Mountains falling into the sea. Waters roaring and foaming. The earth melting. A God who has wrought desolations in the earth, verse 8. And He will do all of this ultimately making war cease. He will stop the war. Like He stopped the war for Hezekiah, God will stop the warring of the people in this world. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4, Isaiah writes, He will judge between the nations. He will render decisions for many people. They'll hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. But historically, historically speaking, do you remember the outcome of Assyria's war with Hezekiah and Judah? I mean, who was it that won that battle? Hezekiah? Judah fighting valiantly? It was the Lord. The Lord who, as we said, turned back Assyria. The Lord who, as we said, made sure that Sennacherib got his. It was the Lord who saved. And listen to this, 2 Kings 19.35. I love the way this verse reads. Then it happened that night that the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the men rose early in the morning, behold, all of them were dead. (laughs) I don't know how that works. They woke up and they were dead. 185,000. One angel did it. Note that. God sends one angel. I mean, I'm sure there were several who were saying, can we fight, can we fight? No, I just need um, this. Can you just go take care of this? Sure, Lord. Boom. One angel. 185,000 brutal Assyrian soldiers, and again, not a single arrow was fired in this war. One day, the Assyrians are shouting threats. The next morning, they woke up dead. (laughs) But listen to this. In the middle of Hezekiah's beautiful song of faith, and this is the thing, don't miss this. As he's writing this this faith in God and this trust in God to take care of the situation, all of a sudden, God interrupts. Verse 10. Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Cease striving, Hezekiah. 
and know that I am God. I will be exalted. I don't know when Hezekiah wrote this. Before or after the victory? I would guess probably before the victory because it is, Psalm 46, a prayer of great faith, of trust that God is about to do something great. But it's one thing to write down words. It's another thing to express words of faith. It's different altogether to actually have faith in God. Hezekiah here is expressing a grand statement of God's certain deliverance and God knows Hezekiah's heart and interrupts him and says, Shh! Now, look at what Hezekiah is being interrupted for saying. I mean, the whole rest of Psalm 46, God is our refuge. God is our help. We won't fear. There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God. God will help her when morning dawns. All these statements of faith, 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 faith. And God says, Hezekiah, cease striving. Is it possible to strive in our faith? Have you ever done it? Oh God, I know you can change this situation. Lord, please make it better. Father, I'm begging you, be here. And God says, would you stop striving? Your statements of faith, my statements of faith can even be a striving. While the words are coming out, our hearts are going, Oh Lord, I'm going to say this because this is what I want, but I don't know if you... Oh Lord, and I'm striving. And God interrupts Hezekiah's great prayer of faith and says... Be still. Sometimes the best thing you and I can do is just shut up. Just be still. And do what? And know that I am God. Cease striving, Hezekiah. Just know I'm God. The words are coming out of your mouth, son, but your heart is stressed. God knows that. Let me ask you, is your confidence in your faith or is your confidence in God? i got to confess to you, my confidence much of the time is in my faith. My confidence is in my understanding of the Word. My confidence is in my ability over time to show myself as righteousness. As righteous, my confidence is in the bridge. That they built and celebrated as a monumental achievement of man. My confidence in my achievements. Even in my ability to believe. And the Lord says, Rick, what are you trusting here? Your faith? Or the fact that I am God? And so God interrupts even our presentation of this, what we think is a great faith, but it's really a pretty feeble, frail little thing. And he interrupts and he says, listen, stop all the words of faith. Stop all the songs of faith. Hang on for a second. Even your prayers of faith. Whoa! Just cease striving and know that I am God. It's really the same message we had about three weeks back. Hope in God. It's not hope in hope alone. It's not faith in faith alone. It is faith and hope in God. Cease striving. And know. Verse 11 
The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. I love these two names for the Lord. He repeats what he's already said in verse 7. He says it again in verse 11. He says, the Lord of hosts is with us. The Lord of hosts, literally the Lord of armies, is with us. One angel kills 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. The Lord of armies is with us. One angel will bind Satan for a thousand years in the abyss, Revelation 20 verse 1 tells us. The Lord of armies is with us. Captains of angels. Battalions of mighty fighting angels of God. The Lord of all these is with us. And I think of Jesus, Matthew 26, looking at Peter who's just lopped off the ear of the high priest's servant who we all know was a great threat. And Jesus said, Do you think, Peter, that I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions or 12,000 angels? You don't think I have that kind of power? But Jesus didn't call on even one angel to deliver Him. Why? Because God is not only the Lord of hosts. He is also the God of Jacob. And you need to notice the contrast. He is the Lord of hosts, and He's the God of Jacob. Conniving, scheming, little knee-jerk Jacob. The heel catcher. I mean, what a man to pick to be the head of a nation. And He is the God of Jacob. Listen, Jacob was deeply flawed. Jacob was a sinner man. He was crafty, he was conniving, he was a con man. He got himself into one tight spot after another, but God became his God. And he turned this problem child, Jacob, into a prince named Israel. God is the Lord of hosts. He is also the God of Jacob. The same Lord of the angelic armies is the God of puny man. The God who delivers foolish and flawed people like you and like me from our tight spots. And He did it. Jesus did it by refusing to call on the angelic armies. I will not fight this battle. I will die in the place of foolish Jacob and foolish Rick, foolish Spencer. Foolish Bill, I will die in in their place. And he offers us by that death grand release and a glad river. He offers us an everlasting kingdom in all the ages to come. And so he says, Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations, I will be exalted in the earth. Let's pray. Father, I don't even know the words to say. We need to be still. And know that You are God. Not, Father, to stand behind our words or our expression or our own sense of self-righteousness. 
For Lord, we have not pulled ourselves up by our bootstraps. We have been pulled up by Your Spirit, by Your power of grace and love and mercy in Jesus Christ. It is because of You that we can stand at all. It's because of Your love that we can love. And it's it's because, Father, You have graced us with forgiveness that we can come to You. And so we come this morning. And Lord, I'm asking, would You teach us to be still? Lord, would You interrupt our self-righteousness? Would You interrupt, Father, our prayers of faith? Would You interrupt our head knowledge and our sensibility that maybe perhaps we might really be these people who can please You? by our own strength. Interrupt all of this, Father. Teach us, Your people, to hush, to be still, to cease striving and know that You are God. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I have one last thing I want to tell you. Because I read this verse, cease striving and worship team, you guys can come up. I read cease striving and know that I am God and I think that's such a wonderful sentiment I would love to be able to do that so what do I do? that's the the first thing the human mind does is ask what can we do? especially us guys what do I do with this? how do I make this practical? how do I make it workable? where's the hammer? where are the nails? how can I make something out of this now? and what do I do? How can I cease striving when it feels like all hell is breaking loose? How can I just not worry when everything I've trusted in is not working anymore? How do I settle with this whole idea? I want you to understand that God prepares in us a great resistance. That God by His Spirit begins to grow a strength in those who would follow Him for the days ahead. He plans ahead. He prepares ahead. Like Hezekiah did. Before the enemy came, Hezekiah said, we've got to be prepared. So what did he do? Let's drill through the rock. And let's bring the water into the city. He did two things. He said, gang, we need to dig in. And we can do that. Dig into the rock. This morning. Now! If you're in trouble, dig into the rock. If you're not in a tight spot, now is the time to dig into the rock who is Jesus Christ. Dig into His Word. Don't wait until it gets hard to say, you know what, I'm going to get into more Bible study. Do it now. Because God prepares us for resistance. God gives us the strength we need ahead of time. And we, like Hezekiah, can dig in to the Word of Christ. And we can dive in to the Spirit of Christ. You know, as those waters started to flow and and the river made the city glad. And the people could be refreshed. And there are so many of us holding off the Spirit or keeping Him at arm's length or just keeping Him ankle deep. I want just enough of the Holy Spirit in my life so that I know that I'm saved. But beyond that, you know, I'm not going to get into this whole Holy Spirit thing. Just weird. 
dig into the Word of Christ and dive into the Spirit of Christ. Hezekiah got word it was coming and a wise king, a faithful and godly king, said, let's be prepared. Dig into the rock. Dive into the Spirit. Now, before the troubles come, before you find yourself in a tight spot, let's stand together and worship Him. Thank you.